You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and it is great to be here today with you. Archbishop Sheen will be giving a reflection on the compassion for human life. And, of course, we just look in the news uh, every day and we see that life is under attack. And so Bishop Sheen was uh, preaching the gospel back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, uh, preaching the sanctity for human life and compassion on human beings and... um, Again, the church has uh, declared war against Satan and his attacks against life. And so uh, Bishop Sheen, of course, uh, gives a great reflection. So we're going to enjoy that today. Uh, And then uh, we're going to continue the catechism series. Uh, We're on lesson number 20 of the 50-part series. And uh, it's on communism and the church. Now, a lot of people think, well, is communism still around today? Well, there's lots of isms and uh, communism is still around today, the philosophy of communism, and uh, it hasn't gone away. It's uh, still there. And so I like to always say there's a lot of other isms, uh, materialism, socialism, <laughs> you name it. Uh, there's tons of those isms out there. And so we'll listen to that uh, reflection from the Catechism. So let us begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please enjoy these reflections. Friends, Two of the noblest professions in the world are those of nursing and doctoring. Of course, they have their trials. I know of one little boy who was listening to all kinds of television shows, reading detective stories, and particularly those crime stories on television, dumb, de dum dumb. He had an earache, and his mother took him to the doctor. And the doctor said, uh, which ear is aching, Sonny? He said, that's for you to find out. I'm no stool pigeon. 
And then, of course, the psychiatrists have their own. Very often when people go in to see a psychiatrist, they think they're crazy, and when they come out, they think the psychiatrist is crazy. (laughs) I think Irving Cobb once said that a man reaches middle age when he begins to exchange his emotions for symptoms. (laughs) Well, whatever be the characteristic of middle age, may we more seriously tell you, first of all, the characteristics of a good nurse and then of a good doctor. A nurse, if she is to be truly noble, must have three things. They're going to be mad at me for the first one. They're going to be all cut up. The first, every nurse should have an incision. (laughs) Second, she should have cheerfulness. And thirdly, a sense of the invisible. First of all, she should have an incision. Why? In order that she might properly appreciate pain. Now, it is necessary, of course, for every nurse to have a physical incision. Probably a mental incision would do just as well, so long as she appreciates the sufferings of others. It's easy enough to communicate ideas. For example, I can communicate to you the idea that two and two make four. But you cannot communicate a toothache. If one is to know what a toothache is, one must have it. And that is the great advantage of having gone through pain. One can appreciate the suffering of others. There's a world of difference between pity and compassion. Pity is an aristocratic virtue. It looks down on others. Compassion is a democratic virtue. It shares suffering and pain and feels it as its own. There will then be no professional coolness in the nurse, but an entering into, if possible, the agony and the pain and the fevers of others. That will be a first characteristic, and then a second characteristic will be cheer. There is nothing that so much contributes to the longevity of sickness as the long face of a nurse. (laughs) It's so easy to come into a sick room with a smile. Some of them come in with needles, you'd think they were looking for targets. (laughs) They have to do, of course, a number of unpleasant things. One thing I never can understand why they have to do, and that is to wake you up at 4.30 in the morning to wash your face. (laughs) Some of them will shake you at 4 o'clock in the morning and say, did you sleep well? (laughs) And one of the reasons for, for cheerfulness is, of course, in order really to help the patient. It's so easy to be kind to others and full of gladsomeness. Tolstoy tells the story of a shoemaker who was on his way home one day in St. Petersburg and he passed a church store and he saw a beggar 
in the church doorway, and he invited him to his home. And when he sat him down to table, whenever the wife complained and growled that the husband had brought home this stranger, the stranger's face seemed to wrinkle. And he got older and older. And whenever the wife was kind to him and offered him food, he became much younger, almost like a child. It developed that the stranger was an angel and could live only in the atmosphere of kindness. And that's the only way that patients can ever live, too, in an atmosphere of good cheer. Now, you take my own angel. When I pay his dues in theatrical union number one, (laughs) he almost gets so small and so youthful and so cherubic that he can hardly fly. (laughs) And uh, then a a nurse to... If I have time, I do not know whether I will have time to develop all of these points. I might also add, though, that she has a sense of the invisible. By the sense of the invisible is meant that a real nurse will try to gain merit out of her profession. It's one of the easiest professions in the world to do good. And when one sees the sick, from a truly religious point of view, it will not be just a patient in room 204. Our blessed Lord said, I was sick. And you visited me. I was hungry. And you gave me to eat. I was thirsty. And you gave me to drink. And on the last day, the just, the nurses, the good nurses will say, When? When? When did we see you hungry and give you to eat? When thirsty did we give you to drink? When sick did we visit you? And he will say, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Every fevered brow will be seen as a brow that was crowned with thorns, and every aching hand will seem to the nurse as one that has been pierced with nails. And every wounded foot will be one that was riven with steel. And every aching heart will be one that knew the unkind kiss of a lance. Then there's merit in it. Then it is a noble calling. And then they will understand who their patron is. The founder of the Red Cross. Of the real Red Cross. Camillus. Camillus of Lelis, born around 1550, developed a hospital system, one of the first one to develop field ambulances. Always sick, and yet he cared for the sick all of his life, founded a congregation of the sick. When he was born, his mother had a vision of her child. The child had a red cross on his breast. And there were children following her own child. And she thought that that meant that her child was to be a bandit. And these children were... Seeking his execution. Later on it developed that he was to found the real Red Cross, one with faith in it. He went back and discovered that Constantine, who saw the cross in the sky, also founded the Knights of the Cross. And all the Crusaders 
And their great mission bore a red cross on their cloaks. When he founded his community, he put a red cross on each of them, reminded them that they were to mortify themselves as their Savior mortified himself. One day he was afraid that possibly his organization was failing, and the Lord spoke to him and said, Coward, go ahead. This is my work, not thine. May all who follow that noble profession understand the meaning of the Red Cross. Red, because it's sacrificed born to the love of God and the cross. Because it is love, the love of the Savior. And if that be the nobility of nursing, then a word about doctors and their great calling, too. Doctors need not have incisions, but a doctor should have, first of all, reverence for personality. Personality, not individuality. There's a world of difference between personality and individuality. For example, this piece of chalk is an individual piece of chalk, but it is not a person. You go to the grocery store and buy oranges, you say, this is a bad one, give me another one. A tube gives out in your radio set, you buy another tube. Unless you have an admiral, then you don't have to buy one. So individuals are replaceable. An individual is instrumental. An individual is only a means to an end. But a person is irreplaceable. Unique. No one in all the world can take the place of your mother. No one can ever substitute for any other person in the world. And a doctor treats persons. And a person is sacred. Sacred, first of all, because his body is a temple. Then it is a soul, a soul that came from God. And that soul, and this whole personality is worth more than the created universe. What doth it profit a man to gain the whole world? Lose his soul. Then that soul, too, was redeemed by the precious blood of the Savior. And therefore, every single person in the world is sacred. And the dignity of the medical profession is that it deals with God's noblest creatures to relieve as far in as is possible the heritages and the effect of sin which is pain and which is disease. Therefore, a doctor, a good doctor, will always be opposed to this idea that was introduced by the Nazis. A terrible idea. It was called... Merciful killing. 
To say that killing is merciful is just like speaking of honest thievery. <coughs> Virtuous rape. Hilarious income tax. <laughs> it's a contradiction in terms. In 1936, Hitler decided to introduce this idea into Germany. And, of course, people like that never introduce ideas of that kind without always covering it up with some very high-sounding charitable name. And he called it a charitable organization for the institutional. And he asked that all of those who could not be a benefit to society would be killed. There was some protest. Do you know how many were killed by Hitler? This does not include the non-Aryans. He killed, until the outbreak of the war, 275,000 people. Once the door was open for destroying the sanctity of a single personality, then you had this slaughter. Merciful killing, he called it. You know what it is? It's suicide plus murder. He combined within himself two of the most awful crimes that humanity knows. The crime of Judas and also the crime of Cain. The doctors naturally rebelled against this idea, as all doctors in our own country would also rebel against it. And they would do so simply because they knew that there must never be any kind of legalized taking of a life. They say that this is justified on the ground that, well, happiness and suffering are incompatible. They are not incompatible. In some individuals, happiness and suffering are incompatible. But I have known some suffering people who are very happy. I think one of the happiest persons I ever met in my life was a leper woman in the Caribbean. As soon as I shook hands with her, full of radiant joy, I said, you're very happy. She said, there isn't a happier person in the world. Now, when people have nothing to live for, when they've forgotten their destiny and their real worth, then sometimes happiness and suffering are incompatible. Suffering can be a purgation. And then they say, well, this crime of Hitler is justified on the ground that these people are no longer useful to society. No longer useful then how about our veterans in Korea that have lost their arms and their legs? Are they not useful to society? Are they not giving us examples of heroism? For what are they fought? Oh, they come back with stumps. They're reminding us that there are some things that are very precious in life and one must suffer for them. And then once we begin taking a life simply because we say... 
that it is not useful to the state. And we'll begin to take the lives of this person and that, saying that his ideas are opposed to our own. This crime that was introduced by Hitler has shocked the doctors of the world. And they would never bow down to it, particularly those who have taken, and almost all of them have, that oath of Hippocrates. Remember, Hippocrates lived in the 5th century before Christ. Think of it. Now, see how idealistic was this great physician. And this is the oath that is taken in many medical schools. I will use treatment to help the sick according to my ability and judgment, but never with a view to injury and wrongdoing. Neither will I administer a poison to anybody when asked to do so, nor will I suggest such a course. Similarly, I will not give to a woman a means to cause abortion, but I will keep pure and holy both in my life and in my art. I will not use the knife, not even verily on sufferers from stone, but I will give place to such as are craftsmen therein. Into whatsoever house I will enter to help the sick, I will abstain from all intentional wrongdoing and harm, especially from abusing the bodies of man or woman, bond or free. And whatsoever I shall hear or see in the course of my profession, as well as outside of my profession, in my intercourse with men, if it be what should not be published abroad, I will never divulge holding such things to be holy secrets. Now, if I carry out this oath and break it not, may I gain forever reputation among all men for my life and for my art. But if I transgress it and forswear myself, may the opposite befall me. That's the position five centuries before Christ. May it be the motto of those who have inherited the great Christian tradition. And then in addition to that, we might also say that the doctor is to practice personalized medicine. That is in contrast to socialized medicine. Personalized medicine. There's a world of difference between nature and humanity. Nature is concerned only with species. The individuals may perish. Humanity is concerned with persons, not with species. And thousands of ants perish. What is important according to nature is that the species survive. Hitler took over this idea and he says that what is important is that the Germanic race survive. And the individuals outside of that race are unimportant. The species alone matters. Lenin and Stalin and Malenkov have taken it too, and they have said that what is important is the class. And all individuals outside of the revolutionary class are to be liquidated. They are saying that what is important only is social health, not personal health. That is not true. Social health is conditioned only upon individual health. And if a doctor would leave any patient simply because he could not pay for his care, or because he was apparently incurable, or for any other reason, in order to serve the abstract claims of society, he would be selling the past. Therefore, may the doctors realize that 
the greatest of all professions, one that was sanctified by our blessed Lord. Luke, who wrote the third gospel, was a physician. And Luke, describing the message of our blessed Lord, said that he sent out his apostles to preach and to heal. It was interesting that Luke, who always used medical terms such as for the needle, he used the word baloney, meaning surgical needle, while the others used raffis, which only meant a sewing needle. It is interesting that Luke, the physician, should set that down. He meant that those who are preaching the word of God and that those who are caring for bodies are about the only professions now that are left in the world that care for persons. This is how democracy survives, by recognizing the worth of personalities. And may these two professions always be comrades in arms, marching together for the health of soul and body of persons. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today. 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program... Your life is worth living. Hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me for this hour of reflection from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. I was very touched by that uh, reflection on compassion for human beings. I think of the doctors and the nurses who bring a great deal of compassion. Uh, Many of us are aging, and uh, those aches and pains are upon us. And uh, boy, do we ever pray that we will have compassionate care uh, in those times of suffering. So let us pray that the Lord will send good laborers into the harvest, these uh, beautiful workers of great compassion, bringing God's love to those who are suffering. And so now let us uh, continue our catechism lesson. We're going to have Bishop Sheen give us a reflection on communism in the church. And so I ask you to put your thinking caps on now and enjoy this lesson by the Venerable Archbishop Sheen. Peace be to you. 
Now, there actually is such a thing in the world as authoritarianism. It is communism. What is the essence of authoritarianism? Well, I would say it was threefold. First, it subjects the mind to dogmas. Two, it makes fear the basis of obedience. Three, it destroys freedom of thought. Now, the church has none of these qualities. It could not have them. Because remember that our blessed Lord lived in the midst of authoritarianism. The people among whom he moved were under the power of the Romans. Furthermore, all of the Pharisees were authoritarian. So when, therefore, our blessed Lord founded his church, naturally, he made it a bulwark against all forms of authoritarianism. Notice how he even contrasted his church and what would be likened to communism. He said, you know that among the Gentiles, those who bear rule, lord it over them, and great men vaunt their power over them. But with you, it must be otherwise. And whoever has a mind to be first among you must be your slave. Now, how did our Lord save us in his church from authoritarianism? We're going to contrast here the three characteristics of communism with three characteristics of the church. First, our blessed Lord established a church in which, one, we do not obey a system, but a person. Two, in the church, the basis of our obedience is not fear, but love. And thirdly, in the church, freedom of thought is saved by reverence for the truth. Now let's take these up one by one. First of all, dogmas. In communism and in any other form of authoritarianism, one has to submit to a system, that is to say, a very complicated network of assumptions, codes and directives and orders, which are very often abstract, such as, for example, the dialectical materialism of communism, the theory of class conflict, and the labor theory of value. But as Catholics... We do not subscribe to a system of dogmas. We begin with a person. The person of our Lord continued in his mystical body, the church. What is faith? Faith is the meeting of two personalities. You and our Lord. There's no adhesion to an abstract dogma, but rather a communion with a person who can neither deceive nor be deceived. The authoritarian 
starts with a party line. We start with our Lord, the Son of the living God, who said, I am the truth. I am the truth. In other words, truth was identified with his personality. Remember when you were a child? What did you consider your home? Just a sum of commands given by either your mother or your father? It was more than that, was it not? It was the love of their personalities. Our faith, then, is first and foremost in Christ, who lives in his mystical body, the church. It is only secondarily in the explicit beliefs. If our blessed Lord did not reveal them, we would not believe them. If we lost him, we would lose our beliefs. He comes first. Everything else is secondary. There is no doctrine, no moral, no dogma, no liturgy, no belief apart from him. He is the object of faith. Not a dogma. For example, there is a kind of a dogma, we might call it that, that when a young man loves a young woman, he should give her a ring when he becomes engaged to her. But what is primary to that custom and that dogma that he should give a ring? Is it not a love of her person? So with us. To a Catholic, there's nothing credible in the church apart from Christ who lives in it. Why, if we did not believe that our Lord was God, if we said that he was only a good man, we would never believe in the Eucharist or the Trinity. If we believe that our Lord was just simply a human being who perished in the dust, we would not believe in the forgiveness of sins. But we know that our blessed Lord, once taught, governed, and sanctified through a physical body which he took from his mother, and now we know that he continues to teach and to govern and to sanctify in the mystical body which he took from the womb of humanity. His first body was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. His mystical body was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Therefore, we accept every single word of his. Not just what his secretaries wrote, but we receive his living word living through the centuries. You've heard it said, I want no church standing between me and Christ. There is no church standing between us and Christ. The church is Christ. Why he no more stands between, or rather the church no more stands between him and us, for example, than my body stands between me and my invisible mind. The church is what St. Augustine called the totus Christus, the whole Christ. And therefore is truth living through the ages. Oh, thank God for your faith. 
your faith in the person of Christ, who is the eternal contemporary. Now that brings us to the other charge that is made, namely that if you belong to the church, you are subject to fear. It is true that in every single system of authoritarianism, fear is the basis of obedience. But because we start with the person of Christ, the basis of our obedience is not fear. It is love. You cannot love dialectical materialism, but you can love a person. And between our Lord and us, there's a bond of love. And these two are inseparable. That is why our Lord did not communicate to Peter the power of ruling and governing his church until St. Peter told our Lord three times that he loved him. The power to command in the church comes only from obedience to Christ. Therefore, the submission that we as Catholics make to the Church is something like the submission that we make, well, to one of our most devoted friends. It's like the obedience of a son to a loving father. We do not feel any distance between our Lord and us. As a pupil becomes more and more attached to his teacher, the more he absorbs the truths of the teacher, so too we become more and more united to Christ, the more we love him, and also the more of his truth that we absorb. The more we know our Lord, the more we obey the truth manifested through his church, the less we fear. That is why scripture says, perfect love casteth out fear. The more his truth is ours, the more we love him. And when we fall away from the faith, God forbid, it is not like falling away from oh, the love of a book or a song or a trinket. It's falling from a friendship. It's falling from love. I really cannot imagine anything more cold and more enslaving, more paralyzing to human reason, more destructive of freedom than that thing to which millions of people are prostrating themselves every day namely the terrible anonymous authority of they. They say they are wearing green this year. They say that Catholics adore Mary. They say that the hair will be worn shorter this year. They say that Freud is the thing. Who are they? 
countless slaves and puppets are bowing down daily before that invisible, tyrannical myth of they. No wonder dictatorships arose to personalize that terrible slavery. These millions will not accept the authority of Christ to rose from the dead who continues to live in the church. We know whom we obey. They do not know whom they are obeying. They cannot point to the persons or to the object behind that terrible anonymous they. But thank God we know. We obey our Lord in the church. The very negative proof of the fact that it is love that binds us is in the thousands and thousands of letters that I have received in the course of years from persons who have fallen away from the church or who are outside of it because they entered into a second or a third invalid marriage. All of these letters express invariably a great unhappiness on the inside, a boredom, an ennui, a disgust, and an anxiety. Not because they have broken a law, but because they have broken a bond of friendship with the Sacred Heart. Their loneliness also bears witness to the truth that when there is no person to love, there's no certitude. There's only subjection. When there's the love of Christ, then love begins to believe everything. And since no one can ever surpass the love that Christ showed for us in redeeming us and founding his mystical body, the church, there can be no greater certitude in the world. And that's the only kind of love that can save us from authoritarianism with its fear. Make us really loving creatures bound together in the tendrils of affection to him who loved us even to a point of death. Now that brings us to the third point. It is sometimes said that the church destroys freedom of thought and almost annihilates reason. Actually, it is the contrary that is true. Authoritarianism destroys real freedom of thought. You see, you must always make a distinction between freedom from thought and freedom of thought. The devil has pretty much convinced the world that if you accept God's truth, you are not free. In fact, if you accept any truth, you are destroying your reason. He has very much convinced many souls in the world that any limitation that is put upon a reason 
is the destruction of that reason. For example, in the garden, he suggested to our first parents that if they did not know evil, that God in some way was destroying their freedom. So he asked, why did God command you? For him, you really are not free until you know evil. In so many words, the devil was telling our first parents, the purpose of God is to prevent free inquiry. He wants to keep the human race in ignorance. Do not be fooled. God is an old fuddy-duddy. He is a reactionary. He does not want you to know evil. Be liberal. Those are the words of Satan. So God is made to appear as the enemy of truth, in just the same way that a father who refuses to let a son, five-year-old son, have a shotgun, is said by the son to be denying freedom. So to the devil, to continue to be loyal to one wife, or to a country, or to truth, is a mark of slavery and a want of freedom. Let us analyze that assumption. Is it true that the more you subscribe to divine truth, the less free you become? Well, before I went to school, I was free to believe, for example, that Shakespeare was born in 1224. But finally, I was told that Shakespeare was not born in 1224. He was born in 1564. I'm saying that only from memory. I hope that I'm right. But at any rate, I was given an exact date. I found out that education in truth was really restricting my freedom to fall into error. Before I went to school, I also thought that H2O were really the initials of a spy. And then I fell into the hands of a reactionary teacher. He stopped all of my liberalism. Do you know what he told me H2O meant? He said it was the symbol for water. And thus the more I studied, the less free I became to no error. What the world forgets, really, is that freedom is a world that is very much abused. We want to be free from something only for the sake of something. For example, I want to be free from communism in order to perfect my soul. I want to be free from hunger in order to develop the body that God gave me. 
I want also to be free from fear in order to be free for love. You notice that freedom from something is always a freedom for something. What's the use of being free from anything? Unless we know the purpose of freedom. I heard once of a rich man who went up to a taxi driver and he said to the taxi driver, are you free? The taxi driver said, yes, I'm free. And the rich man left shouting, hurrah for freedom. It was nonsense. Simply because the only reason of being free from something is to be free for something. Freedom, therefore, is not liberation from the truth. It is rather the acceptance of a truth. When are you really most free? When you know the truth about anything. For example, you are free to draw a triangle on condition that you give it three sides and not 33. You are free to draw a giraffe if you draw it with a long neck. If you do not obey the truth and the nature of a giraffe and you give it a short neck, well, you find that you're not free to draw a giraffe. You are free to drive your automobile in traffic on condition that you obey traffic laws. You are free in the law. You are free in truth. You are free to pilot a plane on condition that you respect the law of gravitation and you acknowledge the truths of aviation. Now, that's what our blessed Lord meant when he said, the truth will make you free. Now, our truth, therefore, in the church is a truth that has come down to us from Christ. And it is a truth that really is so very, very noble that when we begin to wander away from it, we lose our way. There's a tremendous satisfaction in having a map. And that is what the truth of Christ is like in the church. We may get off the road. We may get off it by sin. We may get off it by error. But as long as we got that map, we can get back on the road. There are indeed some people, once they get off the road, they tear up the map. That's a still greater tragedy. The church, too, really is very wise because it always teaches us both sides of a question. I taught philosophy in a university for 25 years, and I noticed that anyone and everyone who taught in the university always knew both sides of a question. For example, everyone in the Catholic university where I taught, everyone knew the opinions of the modern world in any given subject. In philosophy, for example, we knew uh, Marx and Sartre and Heidegger, Jaspers and Freud and the like. But do you think that the teachers in secular universities knew anything about Christian thought? They know only one side of the question, not both.
Look at the papal encyclical on communism. Communists once told me that the clearest and finest explanation of communism that he ever read was in the Holy Father's encyclical on communism. He gave both sides of the question. Look at that great work of philosophy and theology called the Summa Theologic of St. Thomas. Every single question that great mind teaches begins with a doubt and a difficulty. Then he answers it. We know both sides of the question. Those outside the church know only one side. And frequently, it's the wrong side. Our freedom, therefore, is not an independence of truth, but rather dependence in love. That's the joy of being a Catholic. Perhaps I can make it clear with this analogy. On an island in the sea, there were children. Around the island were great high walls. Inside of those walls in the island, children sang and danced and played. One day, some men came in a rowboat to that island. They were reformers. And they said to the children, Who put up those walls? Someone is restraining your freedom. Tear them down. And the children tore them down. Now, if you go back, you will find all of the children huddled together in the center of the island. Afraid to play, afraid to sing, afraid to dance, afraid of falling into the sea. That is the church. The wall is truth. And as Christ in the church said, if the Son of Man makes you free, you are free indeed. God love you. are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you once again for joining me for this hour of what I like to call Sunday School. Uh, And Sunday School is every day, of course, Monday to Sunday. Uh, But we always need to learn our faith, and so I'm glad you've been learning it with me. Uh, I've been blessed, uh, of course, over the last 10 years to uh, listen to Bishop Sheen on a regular basis, and uh, he has changed my life. Uh, I like to say he's changed my attitude especially in how I deal with mankind. So... Uh, Let's just all rejoice at this uh, saint in the making, and let us continue to pray that the Church will declare him a saint one day. And so until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly 
and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.